Odessa, a city on the Black Sea, one of the most beautiful Ukrainian cities, always in danger of Russian strikes from the sea, and a key place for global food security as Odessa ports export majority of Ukrainian food when other ports are occupied by Russia. We visited Odessa some time ago to understand how the city is living. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyano Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So we visited Odessa, Tanya, with, uh, with you and with uh, some other people from Pan-Ukraine, Ukrainian a journalist and human rights organization. And uh, we also made some reports on Twitter, on Facebook. What are your impressions from this city? Yes, uh, let's start maybe by situating Odessa for our listeners and uh, explain its role during the war. So when the war started, Odessa was running a huge risk. A huge risk because it's, it was quite close to Russian troops, and Russian troops made a couple of efforts to 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 take Odessa. We were receiving reports about strikes. We were receiving reports about resistance, and uh, frankly, frankly, my impression, my first impression from Odessa was a contrast with what we were living in Kiev a couple of weeks ago and what we observed in Odessa. So, first of all, Odessa is a real fortress. So it is not so very much touched by Russian missiles. First thing, so the, we, we certainly visited some places which were distracted, for example, this uh, uh, residential area where Russian missile arrived in summer and killed a whole family, a three-month-old baby and the mother and the grandmother. So really it's tragic event we were commenting in media for, for, for many times. And But this is maybe one of the few places which were touched by missiles. And another thing is that Odessa had light, had electricity. We don't know the reason why, but Russians at that very moment were not bombarding Odessa as they did with most of central and northern regions of Ukraine. At that moment, we traveled to Odessa. We had already these blackouts, which lasted for four hours at least. So we were having like 12 hours of electricity from 24 hours, so half of the day, half of the night. And in Odessa, everything was, it was illumination everywhere. They were not experiencing blackouts. And the life inside, I mean, street life inside the city was really some something extremely vivid, extremely normal, if you can say so, during the war. That was my first impression. What is the situation today? Uh, I yeah, think it, it changed. It, 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 it has changed. Yeah, yeah. What, what we were receiving from, from people from, from Odessa and from social networks is that Russian missiles 
did arrive to Odessa last week, and they were they started finally experiencing the same problems as the people in Kiev or in Chernigiv or in Dnipro. In Dnipro, they also have huge problems now. And uh, in Odessa, for a couple of days, they have huge and very long blackouts. And people are even were even protesting against that because it was something really new for them. Yeah, so Odessa, I remember these uh, first hours of the invasion, 24th of February, when uh, there was lots of information that there were uh, desants, or how you say it in English, like um, parachutists, uh, yes, in Odessa from the sea and uh, trying to capture the city. And uh, when we were in Odessa, we talked to to people who know the situation and they confirmed that there were attempts to capture Odessa from the air, from the sea. Not uh, not very big forces were involved. Uh, I think the, the most forces were at that time, 24th of February, were involved, of, of course, to, to capture Kyiv. So they were uh, quite um, quickly uh, neutralized as as some as 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 we use this language and um since then there were indeed several missile strikes on odessa suburbs uh, mostly but uh, on the coast on the coast the coast yes uh but indeed i would i would not say that for example i, I would i would have expected much much more dangerous situation because we know that russians tried to destabilize odessa back in 2014 uh, during these tragic events on the on the second of May, twenty fourteen, and uh, and indeed uh, the city had uh, at that time two weeks ago when we visited it, the city had kind of a, this spirit of Dolce Vita that we probably lost uh, a little bit in in Kiev. Yes, that's it. But let let's let's um, uh, recall one situation. We've been in to Odessa one year ago before the war started. And we were before the full scale invasion. Uh, yeah, before before this full scale invasion, we were uh, in the hotel in Zatoka, Zatoka, a couple of dozens of kilometers from Odessa. We are having a political school there, so we are um, having courses and trainings with people. And this hotel precisely was hit by, by, by Russian missiles, and our friends sent us a photo. So it's kind of painful experience when you see photos of a place you know. And we were very happy. I remember we were exchanging ideas and talking to people and swimming. I remember it was the last swimming time in Odessa. It was in September 2021. Now it's destroyed. And a couple of others, other villages on the coast, like uh, Sergeyevka, if I'm not mistaken, was also targeted because... Uh, maybe Russians were targeting air defense systems or something like that on the coast. And uh, people inside Odessa, I get, my guess is uh, that Russians were trying, their plan was to get to Odessa by these parachutes, but also at the same time to get uh, after Mykolaiv. But the fact that Mykolaiv resisted after Kherson was taken, it, it made it impossible for them to progress uh, to Odessa. And that explains why Odessa is still Ukrainian. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I've talked to Hanna Schellest, uh, our very good friend and uh, chief editor of Ukraine Analytica, a, a website, a, a magazine in English about security and about Ukraine. And uh, she, she, she's one of the best Ukrainian experts in security. And she confirmed that taking Odessa from the seat is extremely difficult and maybe impossible. So the key thing for them, for example, uh, 
about their practice, their actions, what to do to stay in the city or to think of, of leaving, for example, was the destiny of Mykolaiv. So if Mykolaiv has been taken, that would open the way for uh, for Odessa. But Mykolaiv resisted, and now Ukrainians have retaken Kherson. So uh, there is much little opportunity for Russians to, to attack Odessa. If you look on the map, and you'll see immediately that Odessa in a, is in a way closer to Russians, in a way it's closer to de facto con- Russians controlling Crimea now. Right, it's closer to Russians and Kherson and Mykolaiv. And look, Kherson was occupied. And there is a big question. Some people asking question why Odessa was not bombarded, shelled like Mykolaiv for many weeks and months. Uh, maybe because of the, some people tend to explain by their luck. Some some people um, develop conspiracy theories. We don't believe in about the negotiations between uh, between Odessa authorities and Russians. This is completely false. I'm convinced, but th- the fact is here, uh, Odessa is uh, is preserved. It lives its almost almost normal life. Odessa is a key city for for grain, for exporting of Ukrainian food, and uh, there is no way for Russians to take it now and in, in the cl- nearest f- future. And with the liberation of Kherson, it's it's, it's clearly impossible. Um, and it is strange when you are inside Odessa, and they are. I will talk about that later. Uh, uh, they developed a huge, really huge volunteer hub. And they are accepting and welcoming people from Kherson and Mykolaiv, being closer in a way to Russians than people from Kherson and and Mykolaiv. If you, once again, if you look on the map, Odessa is like uh, closer there, but they are accepting a lot of people from Mariupol, from Kherson, from Berdyansk, and from Mykolaiv, because in Mykolaiv there were also a lot of displaced people because they were not having running water, for example, for months, and people were fleeing the city. So the, all of them are inside Odessa. And maybe one of the most uh, important discoveries for me personally was that uh, we, we uh, normally we say that uh, in Odessa, uh, people are trading and they are so they are very close to commerce, uh, commercials and all that stuff. But what is very important to to highlight is that during these, after this huge uh, full-scale invasion, the prices for, for flats, for apartments, for rooms, they are the same than before the invasion. So I, it's, it's about solidarity. So they're renting their flats and rooms with a lot of hospitality to people from Kherson, from people from Mykolaiv or, Mykolaiv or Mariupol without any, without doubling price. This is very important. So um, <clears throat> let's highlight the importance of Odessa for, for, for the global situation. As you said that uh, Odessa is actually three ports in Odessa. There are three ports in and close to Odessa, which are now responsible for exporting the most of the Ukrainian food. When Mariupol is occupied, when Berdyansk is occupied, uh, when some other places also on the on the on the on the Azov Sea and uh, the Black Sea, Odessa is is the key place. And um, 
I think also for the security of Odessa, it was very important, the situation on the Serpent Island, on the Zmiini Ostrov, and the fact that Ukrainians did not let Russians to control Serpent Island and uh, pushed Russians uh, back it was also kind of a, an important factor in guaranteeing Odessa security. So uh, Russians tried to go away from this grain deal, as we remember, after uh, after they they have suffered from losses, military losses on the ground. But we we devoted uh, one of our podcasts to this question. It seems that Russians are diplomatically unable or unwanting to leave fully the grain deal. The grain deal, which is signed on the one hand from between Russia, Turkey and the UN, and the, on the other hand by Ukraine, Turkey and the UN. So if Russia breaks the grain deal, it breaks the deal with the UN and Turkey, not with Ukraine. So Odessa is, is really very, very important. We went to the Black Sea coast. We made even a few videos uh, 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 from there. It's important to see this Black Sea coast uh, that Russians try to occupy it, but you, you understand this is a Ukrainian coast, and we do believe that Mariupol will be liberated, Berdyansk will be liberated, so we'll see also the Sea of Azov uh, coast and also in Crimea as well. But let us talk a little bit about this volunteer movement, volunteer hub that we've met. Um, it's quite remarkable and very interesting. Yes, indeed. There is a businessman called Mikola who started this initiative. Uh, initially, they were trying to help military because on the, on the first day of the full-scale invasion, military needed everything, almost everything. So they started helping military and it lasted for weeks and even months. Uh, I mean, with food, with, uh, with equipment, uh, with many other things. Uh, and local population, I mean, people from Odessa were helping a lot. And then they were trying to establish some bridges with the, um, with the administration, city administration, which was a kind of tricky thing because uh, um, we should also explain that the mayor of Odessa has a reputation, had at least... United had, Ruhanov. Uh, yes, had a reputation before the war, before this full-scale invasion, as some, somebody being not, not pro-Russian maybe, but kind in favor, not he was Russian speaking, he was not at all this uh, patriotic agenda, he was uh, quite a tricky guy. So, and these volunteers, they tried, tried to, their best to, to, to make this connection between, uh, and to, to have more opportunities to, for city to help, because if you have contact with the administration, you can contact directly dozens and even maybe hundreds of cities all over the world just asking for help, what they were ex- ex- doing exactly. And they were helping military. And then when at a certain moment, when uh, first uh, displaced people started to come, for example, from Mariupol, I wonder why people from Mariupol were going to Odessa. That's not so quite clear, but some people uh, were were coming, at least what volunteers told us. And then a lot of people came from Kherson and from Mykolaiv. So people who live close to the sea, they, they, maybe this is an, the idea why they, they try to stand close to the sea and they chose Odessa. So they, they started this extremely, the, the biggest, the biggest hub, volunteer hub in, in Ukraine is located in Odessa. So what do they do? They are supplying all these displaced people with food. Uh, once in, in two weeks, 
They are supplying them with clothes. They are trying to help them to find an apartment. And once again, the prices are the same as they were before the war. So this is not about commerce. This is about the, about help because of inflation, etc. And they are organizing all these things to defend the city and to preserve this normal, uh, normal uh, life. In the city, and a lot of displaced people, they they became volunteers inside of the center. They have, if I'm not mistaken, uh, between thirty and forty people each day, which are present each day and which are helping other displaced people in this center. And it's look, it looks really, really wonderful. So they say the volunteers say that they helped about ninety thousand people. I think right, right? Yeah. ninety thousand. So at least they registered thirty thirty thousand individuals. Each of each of these individuals have actually families. So they presume that each individual, because they have these packages for a family, and if we presume that each individual has approximately three people, a family of three people, there can be of course more or less. So at least ninety thousand people. Yeah, which and, is, and which the is, aid, yes, and the aid comes not only from Ukrainian business and Ukrainian citizens, but also from uh, a number of international organizations. So they are responsible for logistics, stocking the goods, distributing it them between uh, IDPs and all the stuff. So this is about logistics. This is about uh, the organization. And this is about cooperation because uh, they need to cooperate with mayor office, with administration. They have to cooperate with international organizations to to have all these goods and with people present on the ground, I mean, in the city, just to distribute it in the most efficient way. So uh, the the, the role of these mayors, Trukhanov in Odessa and Terikhov in Kharkiv is, is really very important and very interesting and uh, kind of tricky because they, are, they were everything but Ukrainian patriots, you know, and uh, they were rather people who would who would come from this criminal 90s, having their, 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 their connections with this semi-criminal world, maybe. And, uh, well, they are now trying to be on the Ukrainian side. And uh, sometimes we ask the question, okay, but if, if the Russians captured Odessa or captured Kharkiv, how would they behave? Would they cooperate? Or would they resist? But another question is, especially about Kharkiv, is precisely that Kharkiv was resisting. And, uh, well, maybe Terikhov could have made a twist and say, okay, Russians enter the city. So we don't know. But basically, this is a transformation that is going on. And whether it is a sincere transformation of these people or they just understand that they have no other choice, maybe it's it's at this particular moment it's not that important. The important thing is that they are trying to be on the Ukrainian side. Yes, exactly. So so they are trying to do what they can to, to keep this city Ukrainian, and that's what counts, in fact. And they are, of course, 
absolutely Russian speakers. And just a few days ago, I've listened to Terikhov uh, giving an interview to radio, I think, Radio NV in Ukrainian. Well, wow, that, that's, that's a little bit hilarious, <laughs> but, but he tries to tell you of the Kharkiv man. That's, that's, that's um, a little bit funny, but at the same time, wonderful. So he, he's doing the effort. He's doing the effort and, uh, he's already formulating uh, phrases in a, in a good way. Let's talk about uh, culture in Odessa because what they, they what they say. I remember all these years when uh, people from Odessa were talking about multi multiculturalism in in Odessa and, and saying that they are uh, different from other Ukrainians. That there is specific uh, locality like Odessa is a port city, so the mixture of cultures, mixture of people. And uh, that's why they don't speak Ukrainian, and that's why they pretended to be kind of a melting pot of different peoples from Moldavia, from uh, from Jewish people, uh, I don't know, French, Italian, whatever. This port city, this image of the port. So, uh, and we discovered quite a lot about that, right? Yes, indeed, and uh, this our interlocutor Mikola, who is uh, the, the founder of this uh, volunteer center, they are doing a remarkable work right now. They they are applying to UNESCO to have Odessa recognized as within the world cultural heritage as a city, as as the idea of the city, and this is also this is very interesting thing actually, and very important thing because Odessa. Is uh, let's let's not forget that there is kind of a myth connecting uh, this city with Russian Empire with Catherine II, uh, about whom we will talk a little bit also. But before before Odessa, there was a, a city called Hajibay, a Crimean Tatar or the Tatar city, and um, this is also this Turkic history of Odessa is very important. And then you can say that, yeah, there were Greeks, there were Turks, there were Jews, there were Bulgarians, there were Ukrainians, there were Russians, whatever else. But now, uh, is this city really multicultural? That, that's, that's what we have been discussing. Of course, we can dig into this very long history and add to this history also the European roots, the Western European roots, and the role of the French, like Duke Richelieu, or others, or Langeron and others, and Italians. So, for example, just to give you an example, Odessa is the only city in Ukraine which has a French railway station uh, in which the trains are coming, uh, not, how to say it, not horizontally, but vertically, right? Like people are in France are accustomed to, like with, with the heads, you know, mm. to... And not like elsewhere in Europe, including in Ukraine, and um, it's it has all the traces of the Italian architecture, Belgian architecture, and and French architecture. But whether this mythology of the Western Europe is living in the city, despite some street names, or despite the uh, some monuments, some monuments of Duke Richelieu and, and others, that's the question. Another question. Our colleague, Vahtan Kibuladze, Ukrainian philosopher and editor of Ukraine World in German, was also asking um, publicly during our public events, okay, if, if Odessa is a multicultural city, so where is the Jewish theater? Where, where is the theater in Yiddish? Where is the 
theater in Greek or Bulgarian. And the thing is, is that its multiculturalism is actually sunk into in the Russian-speaking world. And this is also important to know that. And therefore, Odessa tried to develop a kind of other mythology, which is based during Soviet time, which is based upon this kind of a criminal, semi-criminal adventurism of the early 20th century. And secondly, about the idea of humor, like this Jewish city, which is fantastic in its humor, and probably this idea of Odessa anecdotes, Odessa jokes, is is the only actual palpable uh, exported image in the Soviet Union. Like uh, in Odessa, you 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 have it. Everything is so funny with with the Jew, Jewish jokes, and I think it was also kind of a um, sort of um, reduction, of course, of this multiculturalism. So it was a tiny tiny thing which 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 remained. I would even say that uh, Russian propaganda and the Russian empire uh, is still trying to use this multicultural nature of Odessa just to, uh, in the objective to make of Odessa a Russian-speaking city. So a lot of efforts were done just to keep it Russian-speaking and let's... So, so let's, with the idea that we are melting pot, we are Russian-speaking. Russian-speaking. So, so we are Russian-speaking, so we are not Ukrainian. And let's not forget about this tragic event of the 2nd May 2014. Yeah, there were, uh, there were an attempt to, to create the same scenario in Odessa like in Donetsk and Lugansk with this, uh, they called it uh, Rus- Russian spin, right? Uh, Ruskaya Vesna, Russian Spring. So it was about this separatist mood of in 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 a couple of cities. It functioned in the Donetsk and Lugansk, but uh, fortunately for Ukraine, it didn't function in Odessa. But the the price was high because well, it were, functioned uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk because Russian soldiers Russians were, were close. there. Yeah, that's well, Russian exactly. soldiers were there and Russian. Uh, Russian and were agents were and there. they were not present in Odessa, at least in not such numbers. And that's but the price. Let's let's the price was that uh, the number of people lost their lives. And so, and Russian propaganda will talk for for I guess for centuries about this Odessa tragedy, etc., etc. But uh, what I was also impressed by the number of Ukrainian flags. And Ukrainian colors inside Odessa. There were so many flags in a city which was never occupied, so no Russian soldiers were there. And my, the question was why. And at a certain moment, I had an impression, I had an idea that maybe it, it, it was like functioned like they were trying to protect the city from Russians. And when talking to people, some people confirmed, yes, indeed, Russian flag functions like a like a protection. Today. Ukrainian flag. U- U- Ukrainian flag, sorry. Ukrainian flag. Uh, so Ukrainian flags uh, functions like a protection against Russian troops, even if it's just exposed in, in a certain distance because Russians are unable to see it. But it's like a showing at every each moment that Odessa is Ukrainian and we are with Ukraine, so no aggression and no invasion. Yes, yes. And um, so the city is really thinking about its new identity and uh, it's interesting how it starts discussing it. And uh, there are two issues that that we can mention, that uh, there is this idea in these circles around uh, this application for the world cultural heritage that 
let's rather anchor the city's identity into this entrepreneurship spirit. And of course, this idea comes from the businessman. So just to say that actually, actually, this idea was has always been present in Odessa in the in the in the past years. So this idea of Porto Franco, the 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 free port, um, with its kind of legislation, maybe its its economic free economic zone or whatever, that you pay less taxes or whatever else. But this ent- entrepreneurship spirit, this spirit of individuals who are well, doing things, doing businesses, and are not dependent on the state. Well, that's that's interesting. That can fit into a global Ukrainian idea or narrative that it is a country made by uh, free, adventurous people. So in Zaporizhia you have Cossacks, in Slobitska, Ukraine, and Kharkiv you can you, you have this idea of Sloboda. In Odessa you can have this entrepreneurship. In uh, in in Carpathians you have Ukrainian resistance in Hutsuls, whatever. Well, it's well, it's interesting. It can work, I think. Another idea is to come back to these European roots and and to see look about Odessa. It's it's really, I mean, in terms of architecture. There are, only, there are probably only two cities which can compete. It's Lviv and Odessa. In this way, how it it really looks like a like a typical European city, Western European city, yes. uh, right? And maybe Odessa is even more here in this way because it it is kind of a constructed in a certain uh, in a certain way, very very rational, right? Yeah, because it is. This was the argument of this of this uh, dossier uh, formed for UNESCO. So they what they're trying to do, and this is hilarious in fact, because this story started back in April, and now we are in late November. And if I'm not mistaken, they were preparing the final decision maybe for December. So just in there, eight months, even less than eight months, they were able to to formulate what, what they want from UNESCO and to prepare the this is a whole book. The whole book with justification why the city of Odessa, not the whole city by the way, but only the historical part of it. So this is a huge part of Odessa, but not the whole Odessa. Uh, is a, like a, a cultural uh, heritage of the universal value. This is not about local value of the of the city, local, I mean, on the Ukrainian level, like, uh, so one of the be- best cities in, in Ukraine, this is about universal value. And the idea was, it was a security idea from the very beginning, because back, back in April, they were thinking about Russian shelling. They were thinking about Russian bombs. And they, the idea was that if the city had this status, it would be easier for them to protect because maybe Russians will think twice before shelling. I don't. I'm skeptical here because I don't think Russians would expect that. But the idea was that, and another idea was that if they shell Odessa, so there will be more serious consequences for Russian troops and for Russian officials if they do. So in a way, it's a win-win situation just to get these statues. But the, what the most impressive here is the Mm, the efficiency. I mean, they had an idea in April 
they uh, formed working groups, they invited all the specialists, and now they are able to argue, and uh, and they had this uh, uh, speed procedure for this for this book, so it could be decided even before the beginning of the next year. So, and this is impressive. And later, the if if there will be decision in favor of uh, the status of Odessa like uh, UNESCO cultural heritage, there will be also benefits for an after-war period. Because uh, if a city has such a status, there will be uh, impossible to, to construct something ugly in the city center, something new, something ugly. So this is a current problem, unfortunately, in many cities in Ukraine, Kyiv included. So this is also about future, and this is about also this uh, post-war period. Right. And, uh, of course, Odessa well, will need to reflect upon very, very hot issues. For example, the, the monument of Catherine II. And when we visited uh, Odessa, and it was an interesting installation uh, on this monument. So uh, the Catherine II was wearing a hat of a hangman uh, or hangwoman, executioner. And the the monument was kind of uh, colored with the red uh, red color, which was symbolizing blood. And she was she was um, she she was carrying the rope, really the the gallops pole rope right and um, she was actually presented in in the form of an hangwoman or executioner and um, that was important because uh, actually Catherine well we are not calling her the great in Ukraine of course uh, she's kind of the symbol of this Russian imperialism and that was understood by Ukrainians as early as uh, 19th century. Taras Shevchenko has a phrase about Peter and Catherine. He, he was connecting these two figures as the executioners of the Cossacks, uh, Ukrainian Cossacks of the uh, Ukrainian um, uh, autonomy within the Russian Empire. But let's not also forget that Catherine was behind the partitions of Poland and uh, and the first annexation of Crimea. And actually, the destruction of the Ukrainian autonomy—it was—it all happened in a few years, in the uh, 1770s. Uh, so it was 18th century, and it was one of those major events in the Russian imperial expansion in the 18th century. But at the same time, for Odessa, Catherine is considered as a city founder, and there is a certain mythology behind her. Although, as 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 we said. The, the, the city in Odessa existed well before Catherine, and um, and uh, an interesting thing which was told by our friends in Odessa is that this monument to Catherine was serving during the Soviet time, late Soviet times, as a kind of alternative to the Soviet regime, and this was this white Russian alternative, like there is Tsarist Russia as, a, as an alternative to the Soviet Russia. I think this is deeply mistaken. I think we should really clear, we should really draw the line between the Russian Empire and the, and the Soviet Union. These are forms of the same Russian imperialism, but uh, in Odessa, there can be many people that actually look at the the, the monument of Catherine and see it as a kind of an anti-Soviet monument, which is, a, I think it's it's just crazy it's it's bullshit but uh 
But there are people who are believing in that, maybe from the older generation. Yeah, but the fact is so. So what 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 what's uh, surprising for us? Because the debates about Kesri they lasted for years, at least starting from two thousand fourteen, right? But at that very moment, so we, when we arrived to Odessa, we see we seen this image of uh, of execution of Catherine, like a cruel, cruel Catherine, and there uh, there was a public debate and the vote about what to do with this monument. And uh, they decided, and it, it was on the administration level, I mean on the level of mayor, that they will be doing something with this monument. So this was would be unthinkable uh, half a year ago. So they will be trying, will be maybe not demolishing her, but maybe maybe putting her somewhere in a museum or whatever. She will not no more be on this place. And this is important thing in Odessa because uh, uh, before this full-scale invasion, I would say that the majority was this in the frame of the, this myth about anti-Soviet population, anti-Soviet, which was uh, for Catherine because it was about different vision of the of the past. But this is the past. Now I think we are to think about the future. There is no place for Catherine in this future. Yeah, I think if we are removing the monuments to Lenin. I don't think that Catherine is in any way better than Lenin. Okay, so maybe let the last point, the last uh, character that I wanted to discuss is the uh, Odessa Fine Arts Museum. And we visited there. We made recordings of several hours programs in Ukrainian for our cult podcast, podcast in Ukrainian about culture. And um, it is an important place for us because um, it was headed by Alexander Reutbord, one of the most remarkable Ukrainian painters. Unfortunately, Alexander passed away in summer 2021. Uh, maybe it's it's good for him that he didn't didn't witness this invasion, although I'm sure that he would have been a very interesting and a strong voice uh, in the Ukrainian culture resisting to this invasion with all his irony, with all his smart thoughts, with all his charm, with all his energy. And uh, when we were recording this, our podcast, one thing is that today the Odessa Fine Arts Museum is practically without paintings, and this is very... Sad to see the paintings were taken from the walls and evacuated as many Ukrainian museums are doing because those museums who did not do that, they risk either of being shelled by Russians or if this is a case of occupation that the collections have been stolen, unfortunately. What's so, happening in Kherson? What's happening in Kherson, Kherson, right. Yeah. So kind of a surrealist um, feeling that you see those walls, you see the inscriptions, you see the, these um, actually little tables with little, not tables, but how do you say, little inscriptions saying the name of the painter and the title of the painting, but no painting itself or no sculpture itself. And I think this is kind of surreal thing what might happen if we lose all the culture, right? So it's it's in itself is an installation. Maybe some of our museum workers will use it um, in in their installations or or projects in Europe or other countries. So just to to have a wall on which you have only the name of the painting and the name of the painter, but no the painting itself. And uh, 
another very remarkable thing that we we were recording this conversation with Vahtan Kibuladze uh, in Ukrainian about culture and war. And we focused on one of the paintings by Alexander Reutburt, and this is a painting called David and Goliath. And uh, it was painted in a kind of a very interesting style. It was a connection because Reutburt liked, for example, De Chirico and uh, this metaphysician and painting. And uh, he was also thinking about the founding myth, mythology, in a good sense of the word, of Odessa, about uh, Odessa narrative. And he, he had published a very interesting text about it. I, I've read it when, when he sent it to me, I remember, and we discussed it with him. So there is some kind of some element of De Chirico, uh, some element of, um, of Malevich, and uh, Kazimir Malevich and his paintings. But there is actually a replica to Caravaggio. Mm-hmm. Caravaggio, who is having this Baroque painting, David, with the, with the head of Goliath. And why we are talking about this painting? Because probably this is the best metaphor. What, what, what is going on? Ukraine, uh, which is fighting against Goliath and actually defeating Goliath or on the way of defeating. So it was also kind of very interesting coincidence. Yeah, Roy Boot is a, could be a visionary, visionary artist uh, without any doubt. And what you did, to, what he did to this museum, the renaissance of this museum during the time he was a director there. All given all that, I'm I'm almost sure he had some vision of the future, even if unfortunately he passed away before this full-scale invasion. I'm sure he will be convinced that we will win. So, this was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Don't forget to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your assistance to uh, help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Vladimir Yermolenko and Tetyana Oharkova, uh, explaining Ukraine podcast, Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.